<laughs> John 6. Let's go there. I'm not going to take a lot of time for it because we have a lot to cover. We're in, I'm just warning you, we're in trouble. Uh, John 6 is not the longest chapter in the Bible, but it's one of them. There's 71 verses. Um, and for me, that's a stretch. That's going to be a challenge, but I think we can, we can do something. Um, well-known passage that we're going to look at at the beginning, feeding the 5,000. If you've been in church or around church for much of your life at all, you've, you've heard that um, account of, of Jesus feeding, miraculously feeding 5,000 men, 5,000 men. Um, most theologians w- would agree, that there, which means there's probably at least 20,000 people there, um, maybe even 40 to 50 um, because whole families were present, not just men. Um, John has this recorded in the sixth chapter. It's the fourth of the seven miracles that John includes in his gospel. Um, Pastor Jeremy's been telling you that um, John is very unique. It sort of stands alone from the other gospels. It, it has a very unique, it gives unique information. It gives a unique perspective on the things that John records. Um, it was the last of the gospels. That was written, and it was written sometime, a little bit after. It was 15 years after Mark and Luke were written. It's probably about 30 years, um, or from Matthew and Luke, rather, and 30 years from when Mark, the first gospel, was written. So John most likely knew those narratives, had read those narratives, and instead of trying to give his version of them, he decided he's going to go another whole way. When you read John's gospel, you're going to find out he didn't include... Um, there was, there's no birth narrative, there's no parables, there's no exorcisms, there's no tax collectors, there's no temptation by Satan's, no transfiguration, no institution of the Lord's Supper, there's no baptism of Jesus. He just doesn't include them. But he does add things that the others don't. Last week you heard about Nicodemus. He includes that. Otherwise we wouldn't know. The woman at the well, water into wine, healing a crippled man at the pool of Siloam. Healing the man born that was blind, raising, raising Lazarus from the dead, foot washing episode, um, Jesus' high priestly prayer, post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, Jesus as the word and the lamb of God. These are all things John included that the other three synoptic authors chose not to. So John gives us a very unique gospel that broadens, doesn't contradict, doesn't change, but broadens the wholeness of the gospel and their message that they bring us. Um, but when it comes to the feed of 5,000, all four gospel writers chose to include this wonderful miracle that Jesus performed. But having said that, even though John is joined you know, with the other three, he still brings his own unique perspective, his own unique insight. Um, first of all, John doesn't call it a miracle. He uses a different term. He uses the word signs. He, he likes to call the works and acts of Jesus signs. And, and like a sign, the reason he does it, because signs have one main function. They point to something. And, and John's gospel has one overriding, arching focus and purpose. He wants to point to the person of Jesus Christ. He wants to point to the Messiah. He wants to point to the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. He's pointed to something. All the signs of the Old Testament. Um, creation was a sign of the glory and, and majesty of God. The, the pillar of cloud and fire was a sign of God's presence. 
and guidance. The opening of the Red Sea was a sign of God's protection and sovereignty and ability to destroy enemies. The manna from heaven that we'll talk about later was a sign of God's provision. Um, John's gospel is saying one underwriting thing, that Jesus is the ultimate sign. And Jesus is the final sign. God's sending no more signs of who he is, what he's done, what his purpose is, what his message is. It's all in Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He was the one that John wrote in John 1. He's in the beginning. It was God. He was with God and he was God. This Jesus. If you look at Hebrews, the first chapter, it talks about this unique person in history, that he's the express image of the Father. The, the word there, part of a translation of understanding that, that word, the express image, is, is that of an engraver's tool. He's an exact replica. Later in John, um, we'll come to the chapter that's where Jesus tells Peter, if you've seen me, what's the rest of the verse? You've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's that exact replica. Heaven has no and will not send any greater sign to us in the person of Jesus Christ. John also now, from his unique perspective, adds things to this sign, to this miracle, that the other Gospels, I shouldn't say don't, but not in the same context or perspective, that, that the feeding of 5,000 in, in John's narrative is a sign but along with that, it's a sign to a sign. And that's, that's what we want to try to focus and pull out today. That um, there, there's the feeding of 5,000. And if we look at it and study it and treat it as just a singular event, that's not wrong. And there's things to learn from it. Okay, But reality, when John looks at it, he doesn't see it just as that event. He see, this is a two-day event for John. This is a two-day experience. This is a two-day encounter with Jesus, and it's two days that Jesus had planned out. That they, they, These weren't separate days. This happened yesterday. It was all one. There was, there was themes and things God wanted and Jesus wanted to say and accomplish in these two days, and that there's something about day one that was a setup for day two. We can... We can tell some of the importance just, just by the amount of, of real estate that John gives to those two days. In day one, he gives 15 verses. Day two, he gives 50. More than twice. 50 verses. Day one was the object lesson of day two, which will be the application. And I'm hoping we can pull that out today. Let's pray. Father, here we are and we stand with your word open, knowing that you are the living word. And we ask that you would make this word become flesh, that it become ingestible. God, this, this past number of days, I've, I've breathed in your word with your help and by your spirit. And I pray now by that same spirit, you help me to breathe out the truth of that word and that it it falls on hungry hearts and that you accomplish your purposes among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, John begins day one this way. I hope you have a Bible. I, I give a little vote for bringing a, a Bible, a real Bible. A, a Bible Bible. Remember like book Bible? 
They still exist. There's something sensory and something, never mind. I, I'm not taking time. She starts this way. After this, we'll get back to that. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. After this, he starts out with, now, without taking a lot of time, I do want to give a proper setting. This was most likely, in harmonizing with the four Gospels together, this is most likely the time right after the disciples had returned from their ministry tour. Remember, there was a time where Jesus sent them out in his name and gave, him, uh, gave them his authority. And they went out and they came back just pumped because of all the things they experienced. They, they preached the, the message of the gospel. They healed bodies. They, they, they did all the things in Jesus. They cast out demons. And, and they're, they're just fresh back from that. And Jesus says, here's a great idea. Let's just let's take some downtime. Let's, let's go away so that we can just sort of uh, you know, decompress from this and spend some time together. And they were all, all about that. And so they go to this area in Galilee. It's, it's an area that's near the town of Bethsaida. Uh, some of your translations might say that it was a desolate place. That's, that's a little bit of a, a, a gives you a, a wrong idea of what the, it means. It's a, it was an isolated place. Okay, it was a private place. It, it, was, it wasn't in a city or near a city. It was out of ways. It was, it was a large, wide space. It was out in the country. It was a big grassy area, a place you might want to hang out for a few days if you're just looking to, to, to decompress somewhat. Um, the difference being, or the problem, or whatever, the reality is when they got there, there was a crowd. It, it, that wasn't uncommon. It seemed that at this point in time, Jesus was known well enough that wherever he went, there was, there was a crowd that, that would find him. And, and we know also why they were there. Jesus tells us, um, John tells us why they were there, because they saw the signs that he was doing. They, they saw the miracles. They saw the, healing, the healed bodies. And, and that drew a crowd. That captured attention. And people liked that. They enjoyed that. So they, they gathered. They were, they were following him because of the signs, which means they were following him, but not really. Okay, They, they were following Jesus the way we follow social media. You know, it's following sort of a strong word to use in that vein, in that light. They, they, they followed him, but uh, because it was easy. They followed on, on their terms. They followed, and, and that following was optional. They didn't feel driven to do that. They just decided and chose they wanted to because it pleased them. It was entertaining, if I could use that word. It, it, much like social media, right? It's, it's, it's community without any inconvenience. It's connection without commitment. And I'm not down on social media. We use it. We, part of, and it has a part to play, perhaps. A bit of, but we, how many of you know we can go too far? And that's another trail we're not going to go down. This crowd was there. Okay? They're, they're following Jesus because it, it's, it was something for them. It was for themselves. Um, and in all honesty, that crowd has never gone away. That crowd has, has always, and still today, remains around. There, there's people who always like to follow Jesus. They like to be around Jesus. 
They like to be, like to be around the things he's doing. They, they like to hear about and, and the teachings and the miracles and the wonder. They like the feel-good part of following Jesus, of, of knowing Jesus. They like the idea and the experience of Jesus. Lord, Lord, we'll follow you as long as you lead us to where we want to go. That kind of crowd. They, they give Jesus a place in their lives, but they assign where and what that place is. Following Jesus. See, the crowd always wants a Jesus that fits into who and what they think he should be and do. That's the kind of Jesus they want. In fact, it tells us in the text after the meal, if we jump down to verse 14 and 15, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, this crowd was, was there largely for their own benefit. Um, Jesus fit into something that they desired, for the moment at least. And they also knew what Moses wrote. Mo Moses wrote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it's to him that you shall listen. That was Deuteronomy 18, 15, for those who like to take notes. See, Jesus fit their mold. They, they saw what happened. They experienced this wonderful um, feeding of, of the bread and the fish. And they said, this is the guy. This is the one. He can get us in, in what we want. He can, he can deliver us. He can get rid of our enemies. He can meet all of our needs and desires. He can make life good again. And it's interesting, Jesus' response to all that. He said he withdrew from them. He, he put distance between himself and then. And without taking a lot of time, let me give you two reasons why I think why. Number one, you can't make Jesus what he already is. Okay? You can't make Jesus what he already is. Jesus is already a king. He said it. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Okay? So that's what the people didn't get. That, that they wanted Jesus, but not the kingdom that he wanted to bring. They wanted him to set up the kingdom that they wanted. And so he had to withdraw himself. Secondly, you can't call him king until you first call him Lord. It, he, he didn't come primarily to be a king. He came to be your Lord. He came to be in charge. He came to take over. He came to invade your soul. He came to usher you into his kingdom. And in his kingdom, yes, he's the king of his kingdom, but more than that, he is Lord. We don't sing, he is king, he is king. No, we don't. We sing, he is Lord, he is Lord, right? And he's come to be our Lord. That, so that's the crowd. Then, then there's the disciples. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes. And then seeing the large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where we to buy bread so that these people may eat. Now, if you look at the other synoptic gospels on this account, it gives a broader perspective. And it suggests that this happens, that Jesus sees this crowd that has gathered around him. And he has been teaching them all day. And it's starting to get to be dusk. And the disciples actually came to Jesus and said and suggested, 
we need to send these people away. It's getting dark. They're hungry. They've, they've gone through all their supplies. We need, to, we need to dismiss them so they have opportunity to get to the towns that are nearby or whatever so they can, so they can find a place to rest. They can find something to eat. They do. Um, John didn't record that part. John, though, records the question that Jesus asked Philip, which the other synoptics don't include, where he, said, he turned to Philip and said, where can we buy food to, to feed the people? Um, now, sometimes people want to take these differences, there aren't really differences, as con- contradiction, and they're not. They're really complete. They're supplemental. They, it, you just got to put them all together. You just have to look at the picture as what it was. Um, it's most likely a conversation where this is happening. The disciples come to Jesus. Hey, we should let go of these people so they can go get something to eat um, because we're out in the country and they need to get someplace before dark. Um, Jesus probably turned to, to them and said, well, how much would it take to buy food to feed the people? And then turned to Philip and said, where's there a Kroger? <laughs> he asked Philip because Philip was from that area. That's Philip's hometown. So it only makes sense. He would turn to Philip. He wasn't isolating or calling out. Philip, he wasn't put Philip on the spot. In fact, when you put the, all the Gospels together, you find out that this was, this was a group question. Jesus was addressing his disciples. They were all part of this whole conversation. So we have this bread crisis that has come to the surface, right? Um, and in fact, you'll find over these two days, bread is a central theme. Bread's a central topic. I, I don't know about you, but... but I love bread. <laughs> I tell you the truth. Man, a, a dark rye bread with seeds, best toast. Oh, the best toast in the world. It's, it's kind of scary. I'm, I'm Italian. Give me a fresh loaf of Italian bread and a stick of pepperoni. R- real pepperoni. You know, like the $18 a stick pepperoni. And that's a meal. It's just a meal. I grew up, um, we, we spent time in the summers. We didn't do family vacations because my grandparents, my dad's parents owned a, a grape farm. Um, and so we spent our summers on the farm so that we could help with the, with the harvest and, and bring in the grapes. And I can still remember to this day, every morning you'd wake up and my grandmother would make bread, fresh bread every morning just for that day. And you'd wake up with that aroma. Any of you old enough to remember when you drive down the highway when the Wonder Bread factory was still open? (laughs) Right? And you're driving your car and suddenly you're salivating. It's like, what? (laughs) Bread. See, you like bread. You like bread, too. So there's this bread issue. Bible talks a lot about bread. I I have a whole list of things that the Bible talks about bread. I'm I'm not going to tell you because I'm using up all of my precious time. Okay, so what, what do the disciples do? Jesus poses this question. There's this, there's this dilemma and challenge that Jesus gives. What, what do they do? They did what we would do. They gave a logical response. First of all, they suggested that, that we outsource it. Let's, let's get them out of here before it gets too dark. Let's just let them go and other people can handle you know, their, their needs. They can, they can find other places. Or, or, we, or we do 
you know, you check the budget. That's what Philip did. He, he said, boy, it'll take 200 denarii. And that, in fact, that won't even be enough. And, and that's roughly almost a year's wages to, in order to buy enough food to feed. And with the probability that where they're going to, even if they had the money, there's, they're not going to, there's no place around where they can have enough supply to buy that much food. Um, so they checked the money in the box. And of course, they didn't have anywhere near that much because we also know from other scripture that Judas was the treasurer. And John 12 tells us that he had sticky fingers. Enough said. Or you, you also then take inventory, which is what Andrew did. And he said, hey, you got five loaves, two fish. Not enough. So, so the disciples' conclusion was, we can't. The, their answer to Jesus' question was, we can't. We, we, we just can't do it. Now, verse 6, though, gives us greater information. It says that Jesus said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. See, Jesus was multitasking. He was going to do this wonderful miracle and feed all these people. He knew he was going to do it before he asked them the question. So he's going to do this, but at the same time, he's, he's going to stretch his disciples. He's going to teach his disciples something. This is school for them. And he knew it in advance. He had it planned in advance. Have you ever, have you ever been asked a question that wasn't a question? We, we all have. We probably have asked those kinds of questions. There, there are questions that aren't really in search of an answer. They're called rhetorical, which means they're, made, they're stated to, to make a point. Okay? Is the Pope Catholic? The birds fly? Is that what you're going to wear? Right? Th those kinds of questions. And the reality is, I think God still uses, that was a strategy Jesus was using as a teacher of asking a question that he really wasn't looking for all the logical answers that they were. He was asking them something. Remember, they had just come back from this ministry tour. They had just been healing the sick themselves, raising the dead themselves. They've been working miracles themselves. And they come back and here's this situation. Hey, we got hungry people. We don't have enough of supply. What do we do? He was testing them. It wasn't a question. And I think God still does that in our lives. I think it's still a tool he uses in discipling his disciples. You and me. I think sometimes we have to always be discerning and asking the Lord to help us. Sometimes that voice in your head isn't just you. Sometimes that question in your head isn't you. You know, you, you, you know your neighbor has been sick for the last couple of weeks and you notice that his grass is getting a little long and you hear this voice in your head that says, don't you have a lawnmower? How do you know that's not a question? I've been praying for that neighbor. I really want to see him get saved. Don't you have a lawnmower? How does that could? Yeah, maybe. Could, could it be that we need to consider those types of things? You hear of a special need that's available in a family or the church puts out something that here's a special need we need to take care of. And you hear this voice. Remember, you just got that check that you didn't expect. Didn't you just get a bonus at work? Yeah, and what do we normally do when God asks us those kinds of questions? We do what the disciples did. We give the logical answers. And those logical answers normally involve 
time and money and resources and convenience and all those things. And we satisfy ourselves and we disarm the question by giving those answers there. And we justify ourselves where sometimes I think we need to take a pause and say, Lord, could this be something you're asking of me? Is there something here that you're not really asking, that you're really directing, you're really testing? And then then you also have to think, what if Jesus would have listened to the disciples? What if he would have said, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Send them, get rid of them. Look at what what would have been missed out on. This great miracle, this great experience. Look what would have been lost if Jesus would have just taken their advice. He was testing them. It means to examine, approve. He was, he was growing them. He was, he was developing them. He was, he was discipling them. Did you, did you know that in making bread, now I'm not a baker. I like to cook. But I'm not a baker because it's too exact. I like to just throw stuff together. When you bake, that doesn't work well. You've got to measure things. So I don't claim to be a baker, but did you know in making bread, it has to be proofed, it has to be tested, it has to be proven, that there's a process of proving that, that makes the bread usable, makes the bread beneficial. So you have all your ingredients that you bring um, to the table, but then there's this one special ingredient called yeast. And of all of the ingredients, it's the living one. It's alive. It's an, and, and it's an, the active agent that really makes bread, bread. Now, you can make it with just the other ingredients, but you don't want it. If you go to the store and they give you a, a bag or a loaf of bread that has been made without yeast, you ain't buying it. Chances are. And, and so you add yeast, and, and then the dough responds to the yeast. And it's called the first rise. Okay? First rise. That, that, we could use that as, as somewhat of a symbolism of, of faith's response, our response, it's salvation. That, that first rise. Or, or any time that God does something new in our life, or we, we get a, a greater revelation of, of something about God in our lives. There's this, there's this first rise that happens inside of us because of that. Now, now, there's a problem with the first rise, that it's delicate, that, that if, you, if you poke a first rise, if the bread's there and it looks so, oh, you poke it, it collapses. If you, if you poke it, it collapses. And if you, or if you, you say, oh, look, it must be ready, and throw it in the oven, on, after the first rise, it comes out dense and has no flavor. Now, there, there's, I hope you're drawing illustrations. I can't take time to, I, I hope you're pulling out how that works in, in, the, realm of, in the realm of faith. That there, sometimes we, we get that first rise, but then someone comes along and pokes us. And we just let go of it. We just deny it. We just dismiss it. We, we, we let go of it. Or, or we, we, and the church has a, a history of, of doing this where people come to faith and, and maybe they have some, sense, some uh, 
deal of celebrity or, or importance or, or something, and, and they come to faith, and they have that first rise of, of, a, of a new faith in Christ, right? And, and we, we, we put them out there too quick. We put them in the oven too quick, and they can't, ha they can't handle the heat because they're just too new at it. They don't know enough to be out there with everybody expecting them to be giving and giving, and, and they're, they're not equipped, they're not ready for that. And many times they become dense and without flavor. Um, it has to be proved. This, and proofing is this, this pressing process. They call it kneading. K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G, kneading. Not a comfortable thing. And needs to be done by a skilled baker. Because if, if you don't proof enough, it comes out tight and gummy. You ever meet any tight and gummy Christians? <laughs> a little uptight and tacky? Or if you proof it too much, it comes out looking really, really good but it's hard. I've met some of those folks. For the crowd, bread was a sign. For the disciples, Jesus was doing something different. Now, get, get the picture. Get the whole picture, and then we're going to move on. <laughs> he sends them on a ministry tour. They heal bodies, they cast out demons, they preach the kingdom, they that he, because he put in them, before they left, he, he, he put in them this living yeast. And he developed it in them enough that they could go out and they could, and they could minister in the, in the authority of his name. They come back and their, their faith is on the rise. They, they, this is a new level for them. They, they came back and they, they're, they're just bubbling over with, with confidence in Jesus, with boldness. Um, in, in, in his name and, and in, in the, the life that they were pursuing. And then Jesus comes and he says, okay, guys, you give them something to eat. We need to dismiss the people. You give them something to eat. Where, where can we buy bread to take care of the need? You, Jesus starts needing. He fed the crowd. But he's needing his disciples. So day one ends. People are fed. The disciples are learning something. The process isn't over. Jesus is up on a mountain. And he has set the stage for day two. Remember I said day one was just the object lesson. It's not over. There's more more coming. And then there's this interlude that, frankly, I'm not going to take any time, but it's in Scripture. So if you're, you have your Bible open, you're going to see it. Verses 16 to 21, there's this interlude of, of the disciples. Jesus sent them to go to the other side of the sea. And so they're, they're on the way in the boat. Jesus is up in the mountain. There's a storm. Okay, he walks on the water. He gets in the boat suddenly at the other side. That's it. I'm not doing anything else with that. It'll be another day, another message on its own. Day number two, John 6. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side, all right, now, if you read the few verses before that, all right, the, the, the crowd comes back. They know that Jesus was there, and now he's not there. They know that there was a boat there, and the boat's not there, and, and so they go looking for him, and they find him. That's where we pick this up. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did, how did, or when did you come here? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Not because you saw the sign, but because you've, taste, or you, you've tasted of the loaves. You, you had the bread and the fish yesterday. And so he's saying, guys, you're, you're following me, which I'm, I'm, that's good. I, I like the fact you're following, but, but it's still for the wrong reasons. Yesterday you were following me because you saw healings. Today you're following because you tasted bread. So you're seeking me, but you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. You're seeking me because of observations and experiences. You're seeking me because of what you've seen and what you've tasted. You're seeking me because, because you, you see things and you've observed things that, that you think are beneficial for you and that you like. And, and, and yesterday you actually got to experience a, you know, a, a free meal and buffet style at that. And, and that's why you're here. So he goes on in verse 27, don't, don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what, will, what must we do, key, key word, to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. I interesting passage, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to get more interesting as we, as we go along. Um, Jesus says, and makes an interesting point, he says, everyone works for bread. Bread doesn't just, just, everyone works for bread. And the question he poses is, is which bread are you working for? And he, he puts two things before him. He says, there's bread that perishes and there's bread that endures. The, the, and, and you have to work for both of them. The work for the bread that perishes is your investment in things you do. Now, I'm not talking about sinful things or bad things or harmful things, but things that don't. Endure. They, they perish. They have a shelf life. They come and they go. They're beneficial and then they're not. The, the, and, and we work for those. We have jobs. We have hobbies. We have, you know, the things that we do in life. And they're not necessarily wrong, but we need to understand they don't endure. They, they're going to perish. They have a, a shelf life to them. That's the work that perishes as opposed to the work that endures. That's your investment in not what you do, but what you believe. Because that what you believe has the potential to lead you to eternal life. It can last forever. See, Jesus wasn't after their appetite for physical and temporary things. He was trying to develop in them an appetite for spiritual and eternal things. And, but the crowd, they're, they're, they're just slow, and, and they're, they're still thinking with their stomachs. He, he gives them this understanding, this explanation, and their comeback is, so, so perform a sign. See, they're still thinking of yesterday. They're starting to get hungry again, and they're thinking, yeah, so, so do another sign so that we may see and believe. See and believe. Does that trigger anything in anyone about other places in scripture where 
we are taught, and Jesus will teach us again, that it's, it's believing comes first. Believing comes first. We believe, then we see. And that's a, a hard um, transition to make sometimes in, in our lives. Jesus is trying to get them to understand that he's not talking about nourishment for their body. He's talking about nourishment for their soul. And that observation is a wonderful thing sometimes, but, it, but it's food that perishes. Learning and studying and memorizing scripture, having a good moral code, it's valuable, but it can't produce eternal life in you. You can memorize scripture. You can put letters behind your name and graduate from you know, Bible college, Bible school, seminaries. All those. You can do all of that and it still be food that perishes just by if it's observation only. And experience alone is food that perishes. You can give yourself to, to fellowship and belong to three life groups and you can worship seven days a week and you can, you can belong to small groups and you can, it's all valuable. But it, in and of itself doesn't have what it's necessary to give you eternal life. Experience will perish. And Jesus says there's only one true bread. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sure, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, here's a great statement, one of those great I am statements in, in the book of John. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. J Jesus is getting as obvious as he can. He's trying to, what he, what he did graphically on day one, he's now trying to get them to see figuratively on day two. I am the bread of life. And then he gets, then he, he adds that down in verse 40. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. That sounds like the gospel message to me. That sounds a lot like John 3.16, restated. It sounds a lot like Jesus' ministry and mission on earth. It sounds like the good news that Jesus wants to be proclaimed throughout the world. The problem being, it wasn't received as good news. Verse 41 goes on and says, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So, so now, all right, we've had a crowd, but now we learn something else. We learn that part of this crowd, or out from this crowd now comes the Jews, the religious leaders, the, 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 the spiritual folk, the church folk, the, the Pharisees. They, they, and they've been in the crowd the whole time. They didn't just suddenly show up and, and jump into conversation. They've been in the crowd. They heard the teachings of, of yesterday. They saw the healings. They, they, they ate the dinner on day one. And it has to make me wonder in Scripture. I wish Scripture went into it that because there was no opposition on day one. So were they even part of the movement to make Jesus a king? Did this, did they, were they part of the ones who said, oh, we remember what Moses said? This is the guy. Let's, he's going to do what we want him to do. The, let's, 
Let's bring them in. Let's, let's set them up so that we can get rid of Rome and we can, we can be in charge again. Were they even part of that movement? And now they're getting discouraged again. They grumbled. The Old Testament doesn't use that word. The Old Testament says murmured. It seems God's people have a problem with murmuring and grumbling. I'll let you take that on your own. There's a character trait, however, that makes grumblers grumblers. There seems to be a common thread that when the gospel is presented, they'll resist faith and emphasize facts. Okay, they'll go to what they know instead of what they should believe or be open to believing. Their argument is how could he claim to come down from heaven? He's talking about the potential of having eternal life. And they make it an argument about geography. This is, this is Mary and Joseph's boy. Isn't this, we, we watched this kid grow up, didn't we? We know him. He's from Nazareth of Galilee, which is really interesting because if they were really factual people, they would have studied a little bit and found out that, yeah, he lived in Nazareth and Galilee, grew up there. But, but the fact, his facts are wrong. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born in the house of bread of the Davidic line. See, they weren't able to believe Jesus could do anything other than what they've known him to be. They couldn't see him outside of their own understanding and definition of who he was. And there's, an, there's a, a lesson for us there. If we restrict Jesus to be only what we've known him to be, he'll never be more to us than what he's been. Do you follow that? Not the, and I'm not negating or diminishing any experiences you've had in the Lord. But we have a, a tendency sometimes to take, especially the good things God's done in our lives, and we have a tendency to want to make them formulaic. And this is how God works. This is what God said. We have a tendency to take our, our pet traditions or, or, or doctrines or interpretations of Scripture and say, there it is. This is what it means. And without even consciously knowing, sometimes we put walls around them. And then over here, the Lord wants to break down the walls to give you a greater revelation. And he can't do it because we're holding him accountable. We're holding him hostage to what we've known him to be. No, this is the way he acts. He can't do that. Jesus sometimes calls for greater faith, more faith out of us. And we can resist that. We can miss it just by holding them to what we believe to be facts and can't go beyond that. Listen, if we hold him to his, the character we know him to be yesterday, what happens when he wants to show you more of his character? If we hold him and restrict him to the way he acted, the way he moved, the things he said yesterday, what happens if today he wants to say something more, something fresh, something new, something additional, something deeper? We have to be careful we don't lock him in and that we don't hold him hostage by our own preferences. 
It doesn't mean we're not believers. It doesn't mean we're not following him. It does, it, but we can restrict our own growth. We can restrict his moving and growing and expanding in our lives, him being the yeast in our lives when we lock him in. Listen, Jesus never changes. I'm not saying that he was this and he's going to change and be this. Jesus never changes. We know that same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. But at the same time, he's always more. It's not that what we know or have experienced is wrong. I'm just saying it's not all. Do you get it? He's always more. You have not exhausted him. You have not reached the end of Jesus on any level in any way. He's always more. And then the text goes on and shows us that he's not only more, but he's better. He's always more, and it's always better. Now, Jesus employs um, this an ancient Jewish teaching tool called the Midrash. Um, it's like a parable or a story that to give details or a modern application of an old teaching found in Jewish scripture. A midrash wasn't meant to be a literal interpretation of scripture or of the text that it was referring to, but it was intended to stretch the boundaries beyond common thought. We would look at it in hermeneutics, we call it exegesis. We would exegete the text which means to, to draw out of the text by, by stretching it, by looking at it from all different angles, by considering and, and, and um, adding to different um, possibilities. Or, or um, Jesus, and in the text, Jesus takes this bread from heaven concept that, that was part of the Exodus story, part of the story in the wilderness with manna that, that, and Moses that they had, the crowd had already mentioned. And he, he expands it beyond its literal interpretation in an attempt to reveal a larger meaning. That's what he's trying to do. He, he's not diminishing that text. He's trying to broaden it, exegete it in such a way that it can bring meaning in today's reality. Um, so as we read the next, it's, it's a little complicated and clumsy, maybe this, this passage, and it's, it's quite a few verses, but I'm going to read it. Keep that in mind as you hear it. Jesus says, starting in verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Here, when many of his disciples heard it, 
Disciples here meaning beyond the 12. There were there's many who followed Jesus as disciples beyond just the 12. Okay? When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who could listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. So in this discourse, Jesus is stretching both backwards and forwards. He, he's, he's stretching back to history and he's reaching out in the future. He, he's, he's stretching back to God's provision of manna. And he's saying, it wasn't Moses. That was God who sent the bread from heaven. That was God, not Moses. Through Moses, Moses was a mediator, okay. But let's get our facts straight if we're going to go facts. It was God who sent manna from heaven. And he's reaching ahead in, in that he's, he, they don't know it. We have a wonderful perspective because we're looking back. They hadn't gotten there yet. He reaches ahead and we see pictures of, of the Last Supper. And we see inferences of his ascension, of, of leaving this earth and going back to the Father. Jesus wasn't talking about literally consuming his flesh and blood. All right? A cursory or a surface reading, a lot of times people get hung up on this passage in Scripture because they take it literal. Jesus was not speaking literally. Jesus was explaining who he is. He was giving pictures of who he was. He was, he was trying to explain to them about the gift of eternal life that he's bringing of the relationship that he desires to have with those who will believe in him. And his teaching had immediate effects. Verse 66 says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go his way as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One from God. It's sad to know that some people are, will refuse Jesus, refuse to even consider him. They'll refuse to follow him or give him any, any attention at all. It's sad to know that there's some who will follow, but not by faith. And when life gets hard or the oven gets too hot, they find it they're not able to stand. But the good news is there are some who choose to follow with a resolve that just refuses to waver. That was the 12. Peter's response on behalf of the 12. And Jesus explained himself in verse 63. It was a key verse to all he was trying to get across and tell them. And, and, and what the dullness is, why they couldn't, those who didn't receive it, why they couldn't receive it. He said, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, their spirit and their life. See, these things that I'm trying to tell you that you can't hear just in your flesh. You can't just hear with your natural hearing. These are spiritually discerned. They require that you trust um, the Lord for the spirit of God for revelation and understanding that you trust the, the, the spirit of God is, 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 um, it, it has a, a greater truth, a deeper meaning that you have to, by faith, be willing to take hold of. Only the Spirit can reveal it to you. The flesh isn't going to offer you anything except resistance. That by faith, his words then become spirit in life to those who will believe. 
Can I, can I tell you something? If you're a Christian today, this passage is spirit and life to you. If you're a Christian today, as we read that passage, you hear it, it's, it's not, not normal kinds of conversation we have, but at the same time while we're reading it, you weren't getting anxious or fearful or worried because you understood what it was saying. And the only reason you understood it was saying is because the Spirit of God's alive inside of you and those words become spirit and life. Those hearers who rejected Jesus wouldn't allow that to take place. See, to, to you sitting here today, it's clear. The bread isn't bread. It's better than bread. It's Christ himself. The flesh isn't real food. It's better. It's true food. Because his flesh isn't his flesh. His flesh is what he would sacrifice himself to provide for us. His blood is real drink. But it's also better than real drink. It's true drink. You understand that the manna, through manna, God provided physical health for his people. But now there's something much, much better. Through Jesus Christ, he provides eternal life for all those who believe. Life gets better. Moses in the law brought atonement from God. But that had to be repeated over and over and over in order to be in right standing, in order to be reconciled. Jesus is saying God is sending something better. That through Jesus, not only atonement from God, but oneness with God. He said, you'll abide in me and I'll abide in you. Just meditate on that for a while. This relationship we have with Jesus. Him in us and us in him. Is an unbelievable reality. In Peter's epistle, he writes that we become partakers of his divine nature. We become like him. We take on Christ-likeness in this relationship. But I want to end our time with, with this resolve, the resolve of the 12. Peter's speaking on behalf of the group. When Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? His response is, first of all, he calls him Lord. He recognizes his supremacy, that he, in fact, is Lord. He says, you have words. He recognizes his authority as the word made flesh. He calls him the Holy One of God. He recognizes his divinity. And all of that, he was able to see that and know that and understand that for one reason. He says that we have believed and come to know. See, that's the sequence. We believe we exercise faith, and then we come to know. If you've been walking with the Lord for much time at all, you understand that process. You understand that what you believe today, in comparison, or what you know today, in comparison to what you knew at the beginning, it's, not, it's grown exponentially. It's grown so much. But belief had to come first. And in any new level of faith that we walk with Jesus, that same process has to happen. I don't know about your life, but the Lord seldom gives me understanding and then, and then faith follows. He almost always says, believe me. Just, just believe me. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Just believe me. And I've found, I've gone through that cycle enough times, and you have as well. 
that when we, when we move in faith, then we come to know. Then we come to know. Why do you take the next step of faith? Because the previous step of faith brought you to coming to know something, which enables you to take a next step. That's how Jesus sets it up. Come to know. Before we pray, I want to give you three statements just for you to take home with you. And I'm sorry, I should have printed them up probably, and I didn't. They'll be on the screen, so you maybe just take, take a picture with your phone and you can jot them down. We'll have them, leave them up for a minute or two. But just as a meditation for this week as we conclude John 6. Number one is don't expect Jesus to treat you as one of the crowd. The 12 were part of the crowd, but he didn't treat them as part of the crowd. They were his disciples. He treated them as disciples. You're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. He's not going to treat you like your neighbor. He's not going to treat you like other people in your life that don't know him, that aren't following him. He's going to treat you differently. He's going to treat you as a son. He's going to treat you as a daughter. And that's different. So, so put out of your thinking all that, well, man, they do whatever they want and they seem to get away with it. That's right, you don't. Because you're a son. Because you're a daughter. While he's still caring and doing things out here, he's doing something else. He's maybe doing, using that same thing, but for a different purpose in you. So don't, don't, ex, don't expect him to treat you like the crowd. Don't expect Jesus just to give you a lot of breaks and a lot of cuts. He's going to hold you to a line because he's going he's to proof you. He's going to test you. Because he wants to mature you so that he could use you, so that he can employ you in the building of his kingdom. Number two, is, an area, is there an area of your life where God is proofing that which you've believed and have come to know? Is there some area of your life where, where maybe it's not comfortable, maybe it's not easy, maybe it's confusing. But if you step back and look at it, you realize, man, this, this may be the hand of God. But even if it's something God didn't cause or create, he may still be using it to proof you, to mature you, to add flavor to your life, to make you more useful in his kingdom. Thirdly, how, you're answering, how are you answering this question? Where can we find bread to feed them? Or how are we responding to what the other Gospels include in that passage of Jesus simply saying, you give them something to eat. That's a question Jesus has not stopped asking of his disciples. Not just the 12. But if you're a follower of Jesus today, he's still asking the question of every one of us. You give them something to eat. Where are you going to get the bread necessary to feed that coworker? Where are you going to get the bread necessary for that neighbor, for that loved one? Where are you going to get the bread that, that can really feed a real need? Bread that doesn't just touch physical things, but bread that will touch the soul of a man, the soul of a woman, and bring to them, introduce or at least offer to them eternal life. We each have to individually answer that question because we each carry that responsibility personally as 
sons and daughters of God, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find this is a real challenging chapter. And I encourage you to take it home, read it this week another time or two. And, and let the Lord speak to you. It's, it's clear and it's muddy all at the same time. But John brings out some, some jewels, some gems that will help us in our growth and maturation. Amen? Amen. Stand with me. Father, I want to thank you. Thank you for your word. It's so rich. It's so full. It's, it's so good. And I pray now that in every one of us, your word accomplish your purpose. You are the bread that's come down from heaven. And we have received of that bread. And we have life because of it. Life now and eternal life to come because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray you, you, you take the yeast of these, this word, and you let it grow in us. Let it expand us. Let it enlarge us. Let it make, a, make us more useful and purposeful and flavorful in your kingdom. God, thank you for your sons and daughters are here. Thank you for their hunger for your word. Thank you for their thirst to be in your presence And I pray your blessings upon them. I pray that you would, even this week, show yourself to them in a very real way, a very obvious way. I pray that you bless us. I pray that you use us. I pray that your peace and your joy is forever with us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. So glad you're here. Chapter 7 next week.